Okay, ideas actually matter. In this uh, episode of The Last Opnus, we're going to explore the idea of ideas. And I plan to do do it as a, a well, as a book review, uh, an audio review of a physical book. Uh, and I'm betting the book will be available as an audio book, too. Uh, no pun intended, actually intended. The book's title we're going to talk about is Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. And it's written by Jonathan Haskell, professor of economics at England, England's Imperial College, and Stian Westlake. He's the CEO of the Royal Statistical Society, also across the proverbial pond. I'm doing a review because even in this digital age, books still matter. That's a reality that I wrote about in my book, The Cloud Revolution, if you haven't heard of it yet. <laughs> uh, and I'm doing this review because, as I said at the top, ideas definitely do matter. You know, uh, the, the intangible characteristics of knowledge, logic, organizational principles, things like the idea of democracy, and it bears saying that all ideas, in order to be useful, they necessarily end up rendered in physical, tangible things, you know, airplanes and pharmaceuticals, or physical ways of organizing people and institutions, uh, using ideas from, say, or communism and statism, to the ideas of democracy and capitalism. Okay, before we get to the book, let me let me say something about how we get ideas and obtain knowledge and how we store it and share it, because all that matters too. And that's very much anchored in other ideas about physical means you know, for doing things, the acquisition, storage, and sharing of ideas or knowledge. You'll, you'll understand why I'm making this point, but let me drive it home a bit first. Uh, after all, if you're only access to ideas was isolated to just your physical senses and your mind alone, and you could only store those ideas in your head and you couldn't instantiate them in any way or share them with other people, it goes without saying, and I'm saying it, the ideas would be pretty much worthless. So we have the evolution of tools, right? The idea of tools, in fact, to observe nature, expand on what we might know. We have the evolution of the ideas of how to organize society, how to organize people to have debates, talk, advance ideas. Not least universities, of course. The idea of the university goes back to about a thousand, just past a thousand AD. It's a pretty old idea. And in fact, you could argue that structure dates all the way back to Aristotle, although it wasn't really a university in the modern sense. And we have, of course, the development of ways physical ways to record or store ideas, you know, from stone tablets to books and obviously the digital means today. And then we have ideas and then, then the means to access those ideas, to share them, to transport them. You know, uh, riding a horse to get to, or taking a sailing ship to get to that ancient library of Alexandria, uh, if you happen to have lived then. Uh, modern libraries and the cars and buses that could get you there. Um, then of course, today we have ubiquitous, take it for granted, internet-connected global cloud, which is a way of storing, sharing, facilitating, amplifying ideas. It's, I mean, it's a, this is a very, um, we'll say, a deep and di uh, diverse subject matter, but it's important stuff because the ideas about ideas and how we then create them, how we frame 
ways to facilitate better ideas and what they are and who gets to, um, let's say, impose their ideas on other people. This is uh, you know, sort of the essence in some ways of the, uh, the very structure of civilization. So these intangible things matter enormously. And then rendering them, uh, sharing those ideas, uh, you know, pamphleteers of the days of yore after the printing press, those, that matters too. And how we can get them other people quickly matters. It's, it's very much a, a physical feature of ideas that matters enormously. I mean, until the telegraph, the fastest way any idea, information could move was essentially the speed of a horse. And uh, I mean, there are a few exceptions, uh, but they're, they're, they're pretty much irrelevant. I mean, Caesar's legions, and I digress, but it's, it's worth just for those of you who might dispute that there were faster ways to move ideas, an idea of Caesar's coming, uh, that idea was uh, moved pretty much at the speed of sound back at Caesar's time because uh, Caesar had uh, towers built on the Appian Way from the coast all the way to Rome, and the towers' distance was separated by the 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 distance for which one soldier could hear another soldier yelling, and then they would yell Caesar's coming from one tower to the next and relay it all the way back to the gates of Rome so they could prepare for the arrival of Caesar. That was information transmitted to speed of sound back at the time of the Roman Empire. Pretty limited and specialized. So ideas being transmitted in ways that were meaningful lots of people faster than that, rather than the speed of a horse, had to wait to the telegraph. I mean, the Pony Express was the last time before that we moved ideas at any any sort of organized pace uh, in the pre-electrical era at a, at a pretty high pace, by the way. I mean, for those of you who don't know, and I'll end the digression here, but it's pretty interesting stuff. It's also my book. <laughs> was that the uh, Pony Express uh, could move uh, information, mail, across the United States, which is a, a non-trivial distance, in, in about 10 days. So 3,000 miles coast to coast in 10 days. Uh, that was, that was uh, I mean, measure if we measure it in modern terms, we, if we want it in bits, as a bandwidth could have measured, you know, that was a sort of a, uh, almost a megabit network. It was pretty, pretty fast, pretty amazing. Anyway, that's how we moved ideas around. And we organized the idea of America uh, with something called the constitution, as you know. So that's, that ends my uh, digressive rant about why ideas matter. But let's talk about the book because the book is, is a book about ideas. The book is a book about intangibles. And because I'm excited about ideas, I wrote a whole book about information and ideas, I was really primed to be pretty excited about this book, Restarting the Future, How to Fix the Intangible Economy. You know, something certainly needs fixing. Who, who wouldn't agree with that? And it's beyond dispute that a lot of what's important in the world is intangible. As I said, ideas matter. How we organize governments matter. And the book's core claim, this will sound familiar to you, and I'll, I'll quote it. It's that, quote, the economy, our economy, the world economy, is partway through a fundamental change from one that is largely material to one that's based on ideas, knowledge, and relationships, end quote. As intangibles, in other words, matter a lot more now, they say, than ever. In fact, they specifically define intangibles as software, data, R&D, design, branding, training, and business processes. So these are economists uh, framing what they think are the ascendant and, and ideas of our time. And these are, I mean, 
these are, uh, and as I, again, in my book, I cover a lot of this. It's the idea of software, of rendering information as data, R&D, design, branding, training, business processes. These are the core uh, animating features of growth in our economy. Uh, I couldn't agree more. They are they are at the heart of what uh, what everyone talks about when they talk about the quote new economy today. So Haskell and Westlake and I we're on the same page. So to to the to the idea that the economy is partway through a fundamental change. Amen. I say, but with caveats. So these authors uh, go on to say that, and I correctly that the. Business investment, and they're very much focused on the economy from a business perspective, which I am too. They say that the economy has been seeing a rising investment in these intangibles for more than four decades. Uh, this is, of course, statistically uh, unequivocally true. And what they're saying, though, is that it's reached a kind of tipping point where, and I'll, I'll quote again, where we have to develop and deploy better institutions for this new economy, end quote. Okay, well, this is this is where there's sort of the nub of where we where we get I guess I get some divergence with the authors, but there's a lot to talk about in recent years about this new type of economy. In fact, talk about a new a new economy, literally in those kinds of words dates back at least to Karl Marx in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. So I'm not disputing. In fact, I agree that we're seeing emerge a new type of economy, but the uh, the nub of the matter again is is uh, what do we mean when we say we need, quote, better institutions uh, to help facilitate uh, our more comfortable uh, transition, let's, let's put it that way, into this new economy? One that would be, a lot of people, the right word today would be fairer, or if we don't mean to fairer, at least a, a better for more people. These are really important questions. Uh, it's sort of puzzling, though, that the the one thing that doesn't appear in this book that uh really given my my uh how I set this sort of review up is is the uh the idea of the digital economy by that I mean the word digital itself only appears about two dozen times in the entire book and we really don't uh, come up in this book until the very last parts of the book with uh, this statement and this this one, I couldn't agree with more. Again, I wrote a book about it. And they say the digital economy goes hand in hand with the growing importance of intangibles, end quote. Well, amen, a big amen. And the man, again, I say, I mean, yes, of course. But why, Why? I mean, not till the end of the book do we have this observation. It really belongs to the beginning, in my opinion. Uh, and it does bear noting that for more than two decades, the annual spending by businesses on things that are digital, you know, software and silicon hardware that makes software possible. Annual business capital spending on digital things has exceeded annual capital spending on the other three categories that are tracked, structures, transportation, equipment, and industrial equipment. Digital capital spending by businesses has been the ascendant and, and rapidly growing feature of what uh, the economy has been focused on now for some time and in the utterly dominant one for more than two decades. So the ongoing digitalization of everything in our economy is the defining feature of our era. And it's the power of intangibles, of course, that matter, but they've been fueled. If, in fact, you could argue 
the principal things that have been fueled by the digitalization in the cloud-centric area, the principal things that have been fueled by that power are the intangibles. By the way, the word cloud appears just twice in that entire book. But the software as a service provided by the cloud has been arguably the primary fuel that has expanded the capabilities, value, and role of intangibles in business in our economy the last two decades. In fact, the, the very tangible business of providing the intangible software as a service, that industry, it's called software as a service in the cloud, was only a few billion dollar global industry uh, 15 years ago. It's now a $400 billion a year industry. It's, this is really quite remarkable. Nothing about that in the book, though. Look, to be fair, Haskell and Westlake's book isn't what focused on, and it's not what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about how intangibles are animated or why they're growing. What they want to do is explore, what they did is explore the impacts and the policy implications uh, of intangibles. And they want to do it by reframing the idea of post-industrial society. Haskell and Westlake's effort is is genuinely a worthy one. I don't mean I don't mean this. I'm not being um, um, sarcastic. I'm being serious. It's a worthy one because this transformation uh, of our society, of our economy, into a post-industrial class society, even though it's been ongoing for a while, uh, over the stretch of history, it's pretty fast, and it's a really important one. It's a uh, it is the the defining challenge of our era perhaps, obviously. The other challenges we've always had, war fighting, uh, arguing about how to organize ourselves, um, the, uh, this, the nature of politics, these, are, these, these, go, back, these go back to all of, through all of written history. The new, new feature of our society and economy in fact, is, in fact, the idea and the, uh, the nature of our post-industrial society. And, and the authors do make an important contribution. And, and, and I'm very serious about this. It's a contribution, of course, uh, that I'm biased about because it's what I wrote about in my book again. But what they what they what they make very clear is what we're not talking about. What we're not talking about is the rise of services over manufacturing. That's not that's not the story. The court, that's an old story, by the way. Uh, what what they what they write explicitly, what they point out uh, correctly, is that all sectors of the economy, including manufacturing firms, and I'll use their their language, are heavy investors in intangible assets as well as the tangible assets. In other words, is this, this is not a transformation of uh, the loss of manufacturing jobs and the rise of a service industry. This is about a uh, increase in the importance of the intangibles in every part of the economy. And this is what we've been talking about with respect to social media and news. It's also relevant to how we organize governments. It's it's relevant in terms of things like security and cyber warfare. It's relevant in terms of how we manufacture intangibles. Ideas matter everywhere, especially in the digital age, which is an aside. It's why I'm so puzzled. They spent so little time on the digital feature of all this, but that aside. So then they, the authors having made that point, and it's a really important point, they go on to say, and this is where I where I really began to diverge from their their uh, their framing, they, they went on a sort of a bridge too far uh, uh, the importance of intangibles by stating that, and they propose that the the value of companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon comes mostly, they say, from those firms' intangible assets. 
okay, remember what I said intangibles are, you know, branding, R&D, uh, relationships, organization. Okay, these 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 um, these companies, these tech giants, are unquestionably masters of it, the intangibles, but they're also titans of the tangibles. Let's just just let's do one example. Uh, Amazon's market dominance is firmly anchored in tangible hardware. Their hyperscale data centers, their physical fiber networks, warehouses of epic scale and proliferation. Trucks, they have their own, they don't just lease trucks, they own trucks now, as you know. Aircraft, they own aircraft and, and they and occupy airports. And increasingly lately, they're big players in robots and they also are inventors of and producers of their own game-changing microprocessor. A microprocessor, to which is very much a tangible thing that's going to go into their hyperscale, uh, warehouse-scale computers that are very tangible. Obviously, Amazon uses its intangible skills to make all that possible. And of course, that's that's the key here. And this is a point I want to make and I make in my book. This is where I think Haskell and Westlake go wrong. They completely miss the importance of the fusion of the tangible and intangible. You could say this is the fusion of bits and atoms, to use this a phrase that got popular, popularized by Peter Thiel. That's the game changer in our society. That's the one that's interesting. That's the one that's really uh, an idea, uh, the cyber-physical aspects of our world that are both animating uh, how economies change and also creating the, the new kinds of risks of all kinds and the new kinds of political and social challenges. Anyway, coming back to, to uh, where the book goes, the, the author's premise is for the whole book is not just that the intangibles are more important, what they want to do and what they do up front in the book is they want to diagnose what's wrong with the world before they give a prescription of how to fix it. I mean, the whole point of the book is first a diagnosis and then a prescription, which is good. Um, that's what we all, you know, that's what we do. It's, it, the idea, the, that's, that's an important idea, let's just say. So their basic premise is that there is a kind of... Um, across the land, uh, both in Europe and the United States in particular, what they call great disappointments because of there's been so much optimism about what technology can bring, sort of you know, great advances in pr prosperity and that we haven't seen that. And so the authors look at the sort of state of social and political play and they say that they're really, their diagnosis is there's really five symptoms of the malaise is what they say. And they, they, they categorize the symptoms in these five buckets, stagnation, inequality, dysfunctional competition, fragility, and inauthenticity. I don't know, inauthenticity. Well, I'll come to that. So I want to talk very briefly about each of these five symptoms that they identify uh, and, and get to the one that I think is one or two that are most important. First on stagnation, let's just state the obvious. The average GDP growth rate, they're right. It's stagnated over the last couple of decades compared to the prior several decades. Uh, the authors see this, this failure for higher growth as a failure of the institutions that we have, broadly speaking, to accommodate or facilitate appropriate investments in, you know, drum roll, intangibles. Uh, that part of the book has a uh, exploration of inflation I'll just say, um, with all you know, due respect, they were just unlucky in their exploration of uh, the issue of inflation. And you'll see what I mean when I just read you one 
conclusion they have when they talk about inflation in the book. I quote, a new challenge has risen, persistently low inflation, end quote. Oh, okay. Uh, obviously, they wrote that before uh, the inflation took off. Uh, so it's just bad timing. Obviously, we are in a period of uh, high inflation. Uh, how long that'll last, and we'll get back to persistent low inflation, that problem. Uh, a lot of us would like to have that problem again. Anyway, they just got unlucky in, in that timing. If the book had come out a, you know, a year or two earlier, they would have they would have been okay. But that's not the core of the book. The uh, let's just let's just say that let's just stipulate the core claim is that we have uh, slower than desirable GDP growth is unequivocally the case. Then there, there are other uh, diagnoses that we're in an age of inequality. But it's interesting. Here's what the authors do. They concede that uh, inequality is the way most people think about it. And, and they say literally that's mostly stopped rising. By that, they mean the the rate of inequality growth. They, the rise of inequality has slowed down. The world is becoming more equal, less, less, less unequal, which statistics show is the case. So what they do is they propose a new diagnosis, which they call the inequality of esteem. This is, and I got to quote again here what they mean by that. It's a perceived divide between high status elites and low status people left behind by cultural and social change, end quote. Okay, it's pretty interesting. Um, I would just say that's a topic that they do cover, but that, that does require one to travel down a kind of squishy path of sociology and politics rather than economics. And so I have opinions about that. I'm just, you know, they're, they're political opinions. I'm not going to talk about it right now. I'm just just stating that it, that that part of the book certainly is political, not about economics. Uh, there is a, a close uh, relationship between economics and politics, as everybody remembers the famous line that Carvel uh, created for the Bill Clinton presidency. It's it's the economy, stupid. So economies matter in politics, uh, and they have their own views of that. They're sort of irrelevant and I think oddly placed with respect to the thesis. And then they talk about what they call the inauthenticity of our age. Uh, to me, that feels kind of a discordant digression for economists to have. In fact, they actually write, it was really jumped out at me. They wrote in their book, uh, inauthenticity is not something economists talk about. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe for good reason. So enough said about that. Let me let me turn to the other two uh, diagnoses, which are very much relevant, and they spend a lot of time in their book on. The uh, their fourth diagnosis is that we we have a, a sort of an era of dysfunctional competition, and by that, what they mean specifically is that we are we've seen declining dynamism, in their words, or more specifically, uh, a reduction in the creation of new businesses. So there's a reduction in the innovation rate of businesses, the number of businesses being formed and and they're referring to the United States in particular. I mean, Europe has had low business formation for a long time. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. This is a problem. And in fact, it's true. We have a lower business formation rate. Uh, this is this is a very serious problem, especially in the United States. And th this is maybe one of the biggest puzzles of the book. And it's a bigger puzzle than the absence of any real exploration of the digitalization of our economy. It, and it's a puzzle that's maybe a clue as to where the authors are going with their their prescriptions in the end, but they don't, they don't talk at all in the book about the very well-documented role that rising regulatory burdens have on small business formation. It is unequivocally the case 
that the regulatory and permissions required to uh, create a business in the United States have increased and become stultifying. Uh, they believe, the authors claim that the asymmetry and the advantages of big incumbents over startups resides with the intangibles. I, actually, I would say I agree with them, except I would add an intangible that they don't have, which would be the regulatory burden. That's the, the rise of the regulatory burdens is the intangible that is the explanation as to why there's been a, a, a destruction of business formation in America. They don't discuss that at all. They don't take the. They don't take it on. Uh, they should have taken it on. They should have should have included that in their pantheon of of, of intangibles. But they 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 didn't. Finally, their um, their fifth diagnosis is that we're you know it's what I would guess I'd call the fifth horseman of the malaise of our time, uh, is that we live at a a time of higher fragility. Uh, you know vulnerability to threats and you know drum roll here you can imagine what threats that they listed is. The two big examples of fragility, pandemics and climate change. Well, no surprise there. It is true that humans are fragile. We're fra we're fra humans are very fragile. Uh, we're very much subject to the predations of nature, natural disasters and, and pathogens. And in fact, uh, I devoted a large part of my book to just that subject about the fact that nature has been trying to kill humans ever since humans appeared on earth. <laughs> and much of what history is about is about how we have searched for ideas that we uh, render as tools uh, to protect ourselves from nature's predations, how we create ideas and ways to organize and tools and diagnosis to preserve life, protect literally fragile humans from the hostilities of nature. So fragility is built in to the sort of exquisite, delicate nature of the biological characteristics of being human. I uh, couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a characteristic of our era. It's what we care about an awful lot, always have, and ironically care more about now, it seems in some ways, now that we're safer than any time in history, but that's a whole separate uh, domain of psychology. Anyway, the authors, they're right. Uh, there are a lot of disappointments about finding solutions to so many things in the world. People expect solutions to come faster, to be easier, and more available to more people. Uh, the core theme of the book is that uh, most of the, our failures to find solutions to the big problems, uh, and they include, again, the two big problems, you know, pandemics and climate change, is, in their words, a failure to invest in intangibles. Now, since I have climate change in the book, you, can, you, you will not be surprised that uh, I take some issue with their, their view of the importance of intangibles to conquer the climate problem. And it's, a, it's worth reading this part of the book, at least it was for me, if, no, for, if for no other reason than to understand the thinking of smart people who seem to know, don't seem to know enough about the physics of energy and the physics of machines and how they, how they see the world through their lens. Uh, what they, what they write when it comes to climate change and the role, role of intangibles is that they say specifically that more building more of the tangible things like solar panels and wind farms and electric vehicles, they said that won't be enough to conquer climate change. What we need are more of the intangibles like, in their again, their words, systems, standards, and agreements. Okay, what do they mean by that? Well, they're very clear. They, they give it an example. They say that the, the idea of a single electric grid 
is an intangible idea. It is. It's a way of organizing the electric grid. It's also a physical way of organizing it, but it's an idea too. And the United, the United States, they point out, does not have a single electric grid like the European countries where one authority can set policies. The you know, policies are an intangible idea. So uh, I feel compelled to note that America's seven grids and hundreds of utilities, that's a feature. In It's rooted, in fact, in the Constitution's pesky concept idea of federalism. So in effect, they're basically saying that the idea of federalism is antithetical to the idea of ideas needed to fix climate change. Okay, uh, that's a point others have made, but that's the point they're making. Uh, they also say in the book that the, uh, the tangible part of decarbonizing energy systems, and this is really, at least for me, breathtaking, but it's also uh, a very common idea. It's been stated many times by others uh, who are very smart, but they believe this. They say that the tangible part of decarbonizing energy systems, and I quote, has proved the easiest part to get right, end quote. In other words, we, we know how to decarbonize energy systems. We've got the technology. The problem, the authors say, is that uh, we we need uh, different intangibles such as, and they're very specific again about this, better business models. It's an intangible. I agree, it is an intangible, but it has to be rendered in a tangible way. And it gives an example of a better business model. And again, let me quote, a better business model that would let people charge their cars as easily as they fill up with petrol and better battery R&D to produce sufficient range, end quote. Let me just say, and I've said this in previous podcasts, such challenges uh, aren't intangible. They're very tangible and they're anchored firmly in the tangible physics of energy. Better business models won't change those facts, that these are very difficult things to do uh, with the same efficacy as the existing energy infrastructures and using gasoline. It's a, but uh, they, they represent a, a worldview, an idea that has been sticky, uh, persuasive to a lot of people and obviously to them. And they believe if we just uh, organize uh, organize differently, think differently about the business model of how you uh, refuel a car, uh, we'll have far more EVs because EVs, they believe, help solve the climate problem. I, uh, by the way, I, I will return to the subject of EVs and carbon dioxide emissions in a future podcast. Let me just say as a Reminder for those who haven't heard earlier podcasts on this, and as a spoiler alert for the next, EVs also emit carbon dioxide, and in many cases emit more carbon dioxide over their lifespan than do conventional internal combustion engines. Uh, it's just a physical fact of the way we can make EVs and operate them in the world that we live in, in the tangible world we live in. Anyway, back to the book, uh, the concluding pages. Uh, this is the sort of... Uh, the denouement for the book and the authors, this is what they wanted to get to. And so the last couple chapters are devoted to the uh, the prescription, the ideas that are, quote, urgently needed, the policy, for, the policy reforms that they want to see happen to facilitate more intangible investment. And they give us an example, uh, and again, let me quote again, targeted payments to the most vulnerable groups, as well as a more progressive tax system, end quote. Well, there you have it. I mean, uh, it's unsettled. Uh, it's their their worldview that to get more intangibles, we have to direct where money is uh, goes. That is, we have to increase taxes more progressively, and we then have have to have uh, smart bureaucrats to 
decide who the Baltimore groups are and and give them the money. I'm rendering it in a sort of a cartoonish way, but that's the essence of it. Uh, and they think, uh, and they wrote specifically that the pandemic and the lockdowns, um, let me quote again, raised the political acceptability of those types of proposals. So now is a good time to adopt them, end quote. I would just stipulate that any evidence that the political acceptability of these kinds of things is in play is not no longer, if it, if it was ever in play, it's certainly no longer the case. The political acceptability of the kind of draconian measures that were put in place during the pandemic, that political acceptability is unraveling before our very eyes. And they also call for uh, more collective action or, uh, you know, I mean, you know what that means, of course, uh, collective action usually in this lexicon is that, uh, and I, again, being cartoonish, is that, you know, we we who have the right ideas uh, get to get together to make sure everybody else understands our right ideas. Not so much in the form of a, a vigorous public debate, but because the people who are smarter in charge, I guess, I, I don't know. It's again, a really, impor really important issue. Uh, they, and I, and I don't mean to belittle the way it's framed, but I guess I do mean to belittle it a little bit because it's so important to uh, recognize that the essence, uh, the core idea of our governance and our democracy is not collective action, except collectively voting for pres you know, candidates during elections. Uh, it's it's disputation and disagreement and resolving this, the disputes and disagreement that are the essence of the idea of governance that can work. C collective actions matter episodically when you fight wars. I get that, but this is this is a this is one of those ideas that's really important, the subject for entire books, of course. But that's where they end up, right? And they also call for, they say it's one of the sort of uh, prescriptions for getting everybody on board with the uh, ideas that they have of reforming the institutions uh, is a, a focus on, well, I'll quote again, genuinely charismatic, mission-oriented innovation, end quote. Oh, I mean, you have to say amen. I mean, charismatic, mission-oriented innovation is is a good thing. It's not the only way we get innovation. Again, a whole separate subject. But it, again, no surprise, the examples they offer of charismatic, mission-oriented innovation are the Apollo program. Everybody has offered that as the example ever since the Apollo program. Uh, and I'll, I'll just state what I've stated before. Putting a dozen men on the moon... Uh, and one program is uh, a kind of engineering stunt. Uh, it's not a way of, uh, it's not an example of how we can change society. Uh, changing society, it would be the equivalent of putting everybody on the moon, not a dozen people. We haven't put any more, else, any, nobody else has been back on to the moon since the last moon landing, that's just the 12th man landed on the moon. So it's obviously very hard to do. And it was charismatic in the sense of a stunt, but it was it's a particularly bad example of, missions, mission orientation for societal level changes in our institutions. In fact, it's even the inverse. The institutions that were organized around markets and ideas and technology is what allowed that stunt. As for the Green New Deal, the authors write, and maybe unsurprisingly, I'll quote, perhaps it's the most charismatic mission in recent years, end quote. Look, whatever one thinks about climate change, I will just say, and as I've said in previous podcasts, events unfolding in Europe make it pretty clear 
about the consequences of insufficient investments in tangible infrastructures and machines and fuels. It's a real mess there uh, because they didn't think the idea of depending on Russia was such a bad idea. And building the tangible investments that needed not to uh, be deeply dependent on Russian fuels and uh, exports was, again, pretty clearly in hindsight, a bad idea. A few of us, I thought it was a bad idea at the time. It published as much years ago. The book in general is, is uh, it, and again, this is why it's, it's, at least for me, useful to read these kinds of books, is infused with what amounts to a faith in smart bureaucratic governance. And uh, the way the authors see uh, the means to overcome uh, the path to uh, smart growth are precisely what I just outlined. These are these are political ideas that are extraordinarily important, and and they think they think it's doable. By the way, without without politics, they say that that, they, that the one good one idea they have is that they think we should create government should create America Britain an a quote an apolitical arm's length body of expert bureaucrats that can, and they would they would be able to uh, help uh, politicians navigate by those, that apolitical body having sort of clear rules and processes that sort of insulate them from the predations of quote, vested interests. And uh, this, first of all, let's just state the obvious. Somebody has to write those rules, those ideas. Those rules are the ideas of the intangibles. Who's writing those rules? And if they're apolitical and arm's length, it means that they're not subject to the the people who elected the politicians who wrote the rules to get rid of that body. I mean, you know, you know where I'm going with this, uh, and you know where they're going with this. Again, this is the the core idea of our time, and it's an important idea to get right, to get the politics right, because we do live at a uh, challenging time with a transformation and a new economy emerging. They think and they say that what we need, and I quote again, a new, more capable state. When they say state, they mean a government that has more, in their words, more agency. And let me end with this. This is this is the this is probably what animated them. This is sort of the clue. The clue comes at the very end of the book. At the very end of the book, we find out the the uh, the authors state that uh, government needs more agency to combat. And um, let me let me read this. It's a direct quote to combat the misdirection that began since at least the Reagan and Thatcher eras, end quote. Okay, they said that led to many on the, the quote unquote right to uh, want to cut down the state's agency. That's true, that's true. It's exactly what happened in the Reagan and Thatcher era. That's the debate we're still, we're still having, it's we're having right now. Uh, and this is the very core of, of the advance of economies in advance of ideas and knowledge rendered into the tangible things that matter, how we live our lives, how we get to drive, what we get to eat, where we get to go, how much we pay for it. It's the intangible philosophy of government itself. The single most important intangible is that very idea. So that's it. Uh, that's my, uh, my book review, my, uh, my, my rant about ideas. There's probably no more important thing, really. As I said, again, in my book, uh, getting the politics right really does matter. Uh, engineers and scientists can create magical new tools. We got to get the politics right. So for now, that's it for this episode. And once again, as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do give give us a rating. As I 
all of us all who do podcasts always say positive ones are better. Uh, rank, give the rankings in the usual places where you get the podcast. And always, again, feel free to email me with questions, objections, ideas. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Thank you.